I do believe that the future of life on our planet depends on how effectively we enable young people to step up. And so that has become my full-time mission. This is The Green Pill, a podcast about the planet and the surprisingly diverse people working to fix it. I'm your host, Chris Newman, a medical doctor and environmentalist from London. And today's guest is Clover Hogan. She's an Aussie, she's 20 years old, and she's impressive, not just in terms of her achievements to date, but also her level of maturity. As you'll hear in the interview, that's probably a lot to do with the school she went to, which both reveres nature and truly empowers kids to become all that they can be, as well as working with two of the biggest eco-entrepreneurs on the planet while she was still a teenager. So it's interesting, when you're interviewing someone who's quite a bit younger than you, like Clover, it's difficult to not compare how you were at that age. Because when I was 20, I was at medical school, and yes, sure, I was working hard, but I was also wasting a lot of time, you know, drinking too much, playing too many computer games, and enjoying myself, but there was some kind of lack of, lack of purpose, I think. And I wonder how my life would have turned out differently if I'd have had if I'd have had Clover's early experiences, you know, with her inputs from her very environmentally conscious parents and the education she had. And I wonder how the world would look if everyone had had the same upbringing as she had. Would we still have the same issues we have now? Possibly not. Anyway, that's some food for thought as we head into the interview. The first question I asked Clover is, what gave you such an appreciation for nature? I grew up in a beautiful part of Australia called the Whitsundays. And oh, wow. I it was the kind of place where you would find frogs in the toilet bowl and snakes hanging from the ceiling. And instead of doing my school homework, I'd go and rescue beach sea turtles. So oh, wow. it was very much one with nature, uh, which is what instilled me with my, my love and appreciation for the wild and wonderful. Wow. I, I, I went over there before I... Um, stock flying. Mm. Um, I went over there and all these like golden orb spiders, these massive spiders. Oh, yeah. were, um, they sit at the bottom of the pool. Do they? Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> exactly. No one like really oh. believes the stories about Australia, but it, they're true. Everything can kill Every you. Every single thing can kill you. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Um, I'm quite pleased to live in the UK because we, you know, there's no animal here that can really like injure you at all. Like, yeah. Nothing. No. Um, so obviously you grew up with a, with a, a fascination in nature and um, an interest. W- w- when did you start realising, I guess, that there was a, a problem? Yeah, so my dad's a botanist originally, obsessed with his plants. I mean, they're more his babies than, uh, you know, my sisters and I were growing <laughs> up. Um, but, you know, having him and having my sister, who was this real kind of like wildlife warrior, she'd come home with a giant python slung around her shoulders, she'd chuck it on the couch kind of thing, um, really just instilled me with this deep appreciation um, for, yeah, everything green and creepy and crawly. Um, and then when I was 11, I started watching documentaries uh, like The Cove, which exposes the mass exploitation That's and uh, slaughter of dolphins that happens every year. And and uh, as well as like an inconvenient truth. And so um, I was, you know, suddenly this very fantastical, idealized uh, vision of nature turned into 
holy sh we need to start doing something and uh, it was like a rude awakening and it was probably the first and only time I've ever experienced true heartbreak but at that age it instilled in me this conviction that has driven me every day since to be a voice for the voiceless and to go out there and do what I can to to do my bit. Do you remember the kind of the moment where you started to realize that all this ideal idealized idea of the world was just kind of crumbling do you remember yeah it was the first it was when I first started watching those documentaries and it was the first time specifically after watching the cove um and it was it was just it was really horrific and it was deeply disturbing um, but at the same time, what that documentary in particular showcased was that there were these incredible individuals out there who were genuinely putting their lives on the line um, to go and protect these innocent creatures. And so I wanted to be one of them. And the first way that that manifested was to start creating documentaries. I love communicating and I realized the power that media could have. And so um, not that long after, I moved to Bali and Indonesia, started creating documentaries about endangered species over there um, and also you know threatened animals like the Bali dog which is deeply misunderstood and abused uh, on the island so that was kind of the segue in and then started lobbying with the United Nations got a taste for politics how old were you um, at this point by the way about 13 um, and green school. So this is where I went to school in the jungle, uh, jungle bamboo wallless classrooms um, yeah, is incredible because it's like this cathedral to nature where, where kids learn by doing. Um, and instead of treating them like a set of averages, it's, you know, where are you passionate? Where are you curious? Now let's see what we can do to nurture that. And it's, you know, amazing. And so it means that it attracts lots of really interesting people. And so when I was 14, I got to meet with the then Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, um, discuss education policy with him, how to create more green schools all around the world. Um, and so it was an amazing, amazing place for opportunity they popped up left right and center um, wow. and it was this giant kind of Venn diagram of everything that I'm really passionate about today so environment youth mobilization um, how to instill agency in people wow that sounds like a good school to yes go to, right? it's a long <laughs> way to commute from London um, it is it is a little far but I highly recommend it if ever you start flying again <laughs> yeah well you know it's accepting it takes everyone in so how does it work like in terms of the curriculum and the and, and yeah how does it work so it's a lot more like university in that you get to specialize from a really young age so that instead of saying you know you're going to be a set of averages you're going to be brilliant at mathematics you're going to be brilliant english science whatever it's really okay but where are you where are you most curious what are you drawn toward where do you where, do, where are your gifts basically because if you look at the recognized types of intelligence, there are about eight or nine, right? Everything from interpersonal, which is your ability to relate to others, intrapersonal, looking inside yourself, philosophical, existential. Um, the standardized education system today only really recognizes two types of intelligence. So mathematical and logistical and linguistic. And so a lot of young people just leave the standardized system feeling really stupid um, because they've been, you know, kind of forced into a mold their whole lives. And so 
Green School's amazing and that it caters to every single passion and interest. And it really tailors the subjects according to what you're passionate about. So I wasn't particularly good at maths growing up and I, I didn't have any love for it, but I had an amazing maths teacher who designed a curriculum around enterprise. And so instead of studying geometry from a textbook, we went down to the river, which crosses through the Green School campus. We designed bridges and then we built those bridges with the local community. Uh, so it's like, <laughs> it's integrated learning uh, on steroids. It's Steiner School on steroids. Um, and, you know, for environmental class, we did beekeeping. Um, for journalism, we went out and wrote stories and some kids wrote books. And, you know, so it's just, it's it's a kid's dream because it's a place where you actually want to go and learn. Um, and it's a, it's an exciting place to be and, and you're on a first name basis with the teachers. Um, so it feels like a very tight knit, supportive community. How did you even get into this school? <laughs> um, so soon after my environmental awakening, um, I this kind of like became my um, my reason for waking up. It was like everything that drove me. And so my parents put me onto this super camp, as it was called, in Bali, in the jungle. Um, and even then, kind of more switched on than I had been. I was like, you know, a little bit uh, reticent to going. It sounded a bit bit boring but anyway they managed to convince me I went and it was at the green school and it's basically this like crash course in how to do life really well <laughs> and so you know they would teach uh like memory techniques which I've since forgotten um or they would teach you you know really important things like learning to sit in the chair of no regrets um which has stuck with me the uh, chair of no regrets the chair of no regrets and it's again it's taking like the physical um, to the extreme. So it's like they would actually create a chair. You would sit in the chair of no regrets, the chair of regrets you threw into the river. Uh, so it's it's the kind of thing that you love as a Doesn't kid. sound very green. <laughs> <laughs> bamboo, bamboo chairs that were falling apart. Um, and so, yeah, at the end of this thing, after having been like, yeah, really reluctant to going in the first place, I turned around to my family in Australia and I was like, I'm going to this school with or without you. Um, and so being the incredible people that they are, they packed up our entire lives in Australia um, and took me to the jungle. Wow. So they moved from Australia to Bali. They moved. So you could go to yes. green school. Yeah. I think the sun and coconuts also had something to do with the negotiation, but <laughs> <laughs> it was it was an amazing decision for all of us. And, and that really comes down to the green school. It's, you sound yeah. like you were quite, um, not stubborn, but um, willful, <laughs> Wilf, a willful child. Stu no, stubborn is the, yeah, the right word for it, <laughs> definitely. So after you finished there, mm. I know that at some point you went to Australia to work for Impossible. So that was um, Silicon Valley in America. Yes. So I actually, midway through my time at green school, um, for for a bit of background, you know, where I grew up in Australia is a really beautiful part of the world. Um, it's a very special place, but it's still in many ways quite small-minded. It's super religious. And so growing up, my schooling options were, you know, the Catholic school down the road, which would, you know, paint students with the Ashen Cross every Friday, or the Christian school where you would get paddled over the table by the headmaster. Yeah. Um, if you were naughty. Right? <laughs> just, just, yeah, on a, on a bad day. Um, and so those were, that was my context for education. And so green school was this incredible journey and it was this big eye opener. But at the same time, 
I believed after so many years in that in that backward system that education should be hard in a way mm. that green school simply wasn't. It should be emotionally demanding. And so the fact that I loved going to green school so much for some reason told me, oh, perhaps I'm perhaps I'm not learning. Perhaps I'm I'm not being good enough. School should be hard. And so it was from that place that I shipped myself off to a public high school in France um, where I studied at a lycée and it was it was really the epitome of what education shouldn't be um you know it was very I'm not sure if you've seen Charlie Chaplin's modern times but it's like you know treating kids like sheep going through a factory basically um I almost failed my English class for speaking Australian English so it was just like it felt like (laughs) I don't know yeah it is true no like valid but um it it felt like it was trapped in you know the 18th century and uh you know you where green school you'd be on a first name basis with your teachers here you would have to avert your eyes in the hallway and they would refer to me as mademoiselle Ogan. and if you ever oh god help me like saw them outside of school uh, (laughs) it wasn't fun at all and so that you know at the time was really really difficult it was probably my lowest point to date but it instilled in me this conviction to change education and to reform standardized education globally. You'd been in both. I'd been in both, and I had to go through that process and just see how um, disenfranchised my friends were in this system. You know, they, it, a lot of people look at the green school because it churns out these incredible change makers who go on to take on some of the world's messiest problems and think, oh, you know, there must be something in the water. But <laughs> there's there's nothing different from the students at green school from the ones in, in any other high school in the world. I've realized that now working in secondary schools as well. It's totally about the environment that fosters them um, and that brings them up. And green school is it, the most special thing about it is the community. And so at the end of my time um, in France, I it was kind of like a message from the gods but my best friend back in Bali texted me to say she and a group from green school were headed to Paris which is only a two-hour train right away uh, for COP21 so the Paris Agreement and so there was no doubt in my mind I I scrabbled together my savings literally pulled coins from the couch bought myself a train ticket and was there you know by the end of the day kind of thing and yeah, it just being reconnected with my friends and my teachers reminded me <laughs> of how special this thing was. Um, and it was while lobbying at COP21 that I met Sue and Pat, um, and they're the founders of Impossible Foods. And so uh, I managed to basically harass them into <laughs> giving me an internship as this like 16 year old upstart. Um, they only took college students and so it took like a lot of like chipping away but finally they were like I think they just wanted to like stop stop me from annoying them Um, and so yeah I went back to green school I accelerated my graduation um, at 16 and then jumped across the pond to America and worked them yeah yeah it was a good time. It was a really, really good time. So you were in Silicon Valley, you said? Yes. And then uh, got kicked out of the country for uh, visa reasons. But it it was all good in the end because it brought me here and doing what I'm doing now, which is very, very exciting and exactly where I need to be. So, oh, so you would have stayed, but you weren't able to. I would have, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just on the cusp of Trump getting into power, funnily enough. And they started to change the visa regulations as I don't have a university degree, never planned to get one, um, I couldn't be sponsored for a role okay. over there. So I had to, yes. 
Well, it's America's loss, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> but you were, an, so you were an illegal alien over there, and so you something came here. like that. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was an illegal alien, definitely. So what were you doing? But the Brits um, took me in, so thank God for that. Well, what were you doing with Impossible? Because I know they're doing brilliant things. They're so. doing amazing things. So yeah, for people who don't know Impossible Foods, they're this incredible startup um, that created the first plant-based burger that tastes, looks, and even bleeds just like real meat. Um, so Pat O'Brown created, um, or he basically cracked the code for this thing, hemoglobin, which is, it, it kind of gives meat its like metallic bloody flavor. Uh, that, that delicious kind of mm. smell and sizzle <laughs> when it hits the barbecue. Um, and so he managed to extract this from root nodules, realized that that was the key, like the magic ingredient, combined it with things like wheat, coconut oil, to create this thing that meat lovers swear by. Um, and so they got, you know, over $100 million in funding right up front. They worked on this product for over six years, then released it into the market. So I was one of the first people on the communications and marketing teams. Um, and I was very, very privileged to get to work with Pat on national youth strategy. So how do we actually market this toward young people across the country? How do we start engaging schools? Um, and how do we really create a groundswell movement with people from all corners of the world so that's what that was the mission while i was there it was a lot of fun yeah well they they hit the news a lot over here yeah when they start when they released yeah exactly and now it's just back then you know we were in uh, i say we but <laughs> we're in like a few select kind of bougie restaurants in san francisco and la and now it's in burger king um it's white cross it's just like swept across the entire continent uh it's also in hong kong so it's it's changing the world it's really really exciting stuff and in terms of the sustainability angle how much mm. better than meat than beef is it much much better so the global animal agricultural industry is really toxic for the planet um animal agriculture is the leading cause of tropical deforestation of ocean dead zones of species extinctions um it's it's not in a good place and especially with the growing middle class in india china it means that there's increasing demand so it you know in no kind of reality can we sustain meat consumption with the population that we have so if you can't change the consumption, you have to change the meat. And so that's what Impossible Foods is doing. Um, it looks, tastes, feels, bleeds just like this, just like the real thing. Um, and takes a fraction of the land use. Fraction of the land, fraction of the water use, fraction of the energy. Um, yeah. And reducing your meat consumption if you don't already have access to the Impossible Burger is the single best thing that you can do um, for the planet after not having children. Mm. Mm. And I know you can go on their website and put your post. Or you, in the UK, yes. you can put your postcode in and see where they. Yeah, so exactly. They're they're not in the UK just okay. yet. They will be soon, hopefully. But there are lots of really cool companies doing similar things. Um, Beyond Meat is another one in the states that's quite popular. Yeah. Um, our closest equivalents probably corn, like Q U O R N over okay. here. Corn. 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 Yes. yes. Um, yeah, so they're they're amazing, and like hats off to them. Pat, as a biochemist from Stanford, when he first started out on this mission, kind of looked at every single industry. He's like, where can I apply myself to take on the biggest, messiest problem? He identified meat, and he's like, all right, let's do this, and he did. And yeah, wow, that is that's that's an inspirational. Yeah, detail, he's yeah. he's amazing, and he's a true leader, especially in the fact that he took on this you know, then 16, 17 year old who had zero experience uh, to speak of. He's very much, you know, 
a leader who looks at the young generation and mm. says, you know, let's actually create seats for them at the table. You know, let's not just nod at them and say, oh, you know, the emerging generation of leaders is important or worse yet, kind of like take a step back and say, OK, it's it's your time now. It's your responsibility to, to take on climate change and whatnot. Um, he's like, how can we actually work together? And I think that's where the magic is, you know, yeah. that intergenerational exchange and collaboration. What a great mentor for a Absolutely. senior to have. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> What can I do to serve the world? And then he's gone and done it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yeah, we all have that within us. It's just figuring out what we want to change in the system. So fresh from impossible, (laughs) you then came here? Yes, so I came, well, I actually came to the UK with the intention of going to university. Um, Because the main reason I had to leave America, obviously lack of university degrees. I'm like, okay, I'll get the uni degree, I'll go back to America and I'll I'll become CEO of Impossible Foods. That was the (laughs) the game plan, plan, obviously. Um, And so I made it over here. I got a scholarship at a great university. And then I kind of turned around and I was like, you know what? That's not what I want to be doing. I don't want to be going and studying marketing communications. Um, I need to stay true to what I'm passionate about, which is the environment, and I'll find a way around it. And so, again, was very fortunate to be taken in by then a social enterprise called Leaders Quest. Um, And so they work with leaders to kind of take them out of their cubicles into the real world and catalyze like mind and heart shifts um, so that they can change their business practice. And then from there was taken in by John Elkington at Volans. Um, Much to his dismay, Mm. I call him the godfather of sustainability. (laughs) But he really is. He wrote the first Green Consumer Guide. He was... The, really the first champion to actually try to engage business. So while a lot of, you know, big organizations back in the 60s and 70s were just shutting down corporations, had no interest in, in communicating yeah. with them, he was the first one to go, actually, we're going to be way more effective if we if we try to find, like, the in-between where we can collaborate. Yeah. So he's been like on... Like Impossible as a business. Exactly. That's why it's That's why it works. Yeah, and so he's been on over 71 boards. Um, he has been an environmental champion since the age of 11 when he rallied the boys in his school together to make wow. his first donation you, to right? WWF. Yes, God damn it, John. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I've been really, really fortunate to have these amazing mentors who have just, like, taken a chance on me and... Um, have the the track record to kind of like prove it they've been in this for the longest time so how did you twist his arm to take you on (laughs) um it's a good question i should ask him that one (laughs) um we met at a a networking thing at uh the anniversary of one of his first organizations called sustainability back when that Mm. word didn't mean anything um and it's now one of the biggest consultancies sustainability yes exactly yeah um, and so we met there and I was like such a fangirl of his, <laughs> my, like my idols growing up weren't like the Jenners or like the Taylor Swifts of the world. There were these amazing green leaders who had committed their entire lives to this, to this cause. Mm. Um, and so we just like immediately hit it off and Volans only has, uh, seven people or so. So he was very kind to say, all right, you know, let's give this a go. Mm. Um, and it was, it was amazing time. And in my time there, I learned more than I had in the, you know, five years leading up to it about how this world works um, because you are sitting in boardrooms with the CEOs of some of the largest corporations trying to shift them in a really major way and it's it's difficult but John's whole thing is that he's he's the first one to champion this idea of a triple bottom line which is that 
no, you shouldn't only be for profit. How are you benefiting people on the planet? And so his latest inquiry is called Tomorrow's Capitalism. And it's about actually, you know, he says, don't just look at the fish, but look at the oceans in which they swim. Mm. So beyond trying to change the companies and leaders themselves who could change or who could shift according to market changes, how are you changing the systems around them? And so, you know, that's the very modest <laughs> mission that he's wow. now embarked on. Yeah. So so you were sitting there with all these high-powered leaders. Mm. Were you having much of a role in that or were you more of watch, watching him and learning from it? Um, a combination of both. Um, I learned so much working under John and beside him. Um, but he also gave me a, a seat at the table and he gave me a voice. And I think it was so important in those spaces to have a voice of this emerging generation of leaders and I can only speak to my experience and it's been a very privileged one at that but I can try to act as some kind of bridge between the young people who have what may be deemed as radical ideas but are really the necessary ideas and the people who can actually you know make them happen with a single switch of a button so to speak um well, there's a huge generational imbalance mm. in terms of all the power is in the people who are over, often over 40. Yeah. And all of the concern is in mm. those, well, not all of the concern, but the majority is in those under 20 who are like, this is, this is going to hit me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This is our future that we're inheriting. Seems very unfair. Yeah, it's, it's pretty stunning that a 16-year-old can't vote. I mm. mean, or an 11-year-old for that matter. You know, I've been working in schools recently and the students are using terms like life cycle analysis, systemic thinking, climate catastrophe. They're so capable. They're so smart. They're, you know, barely into teenagehood and they mm. already understand the ideas. And generally speaking, we don't give them nearly enough credit. And to the fact that they don't have a role in who gets into power and the decisions being made about their future mm. is it's stunning and i hope yeah. that that system changes very soon yeah and it's very difficult politically because what the politicians will say is if you want to get your ideas across mm. as a youth leader yeah you lobby your mp who can then take it to parliament but yeah. there's no actual seat at the table exactly like john gave you at the yeah in the boardroom that's it and i realized just how privileged i was in that opportunity so now it's okay how do we create more of those opportunities? And a big part of the big part of it is just like pressuring them. I mean, Greta Thunberg has been incredibly effective because she just totally deadpan stares down a room full of the most powerful, influential people in the world and says, "You're not doing enough. This is my future that you're screwing over." Mm. You know. And so I think she paves the way for more young people to have the audacity and actually channel the frustration and the upset and the passion into saying, yeah, actually, this isn't acceptable and we're not going to sit idly by and watch the world pass us mm. and watch you make the decisions about our future. We're going to take the reins and we're going to call the shots. She's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> she's actually she's amazing. like, I still find her a bit terrifying, but she's <laughs> she's incredible. And I love the way that she's absolutely taken on. She's like, look, I'm on the autistic spectrum. That's my superpower. Absolutely. And, you know, every single young person out there has a superpower. It's just about figuring out what that superpower is. You know, there are just as many people who young people who look up to Greta and go, oh, but I could never do that. But there is something you can do. You know, if you're someone who's perhaps more introverted or perhaps you're more 
analytical and like to stand in the shadows, then there's every chance you're going to be the next scientist who designs the breakthrough climate mitigation product, which pulls carbon from the atmosphere or whatever. So it's, it's really about how we're mobilizing all forms of leadership to show up. Mm. So even if you're not the loudest person, you still have the same impact as someone who, someone like Greta who can get up and, and terrify the pants off everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're doing a lot of work about... Uh, or you have done lots of work about eco-anxiety and the mm. idea of like why we're so disconnected yeah. from the issue. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you've been thinking. Yes. So while I was at green school, I had this aha moment. Um, and it was the fact that while we had been fixating on climate change as a problem, we weren't spending any time talking about the real problem, the fuel for this climate change, was, which was the feeling of powerlessness in the face of it. And so I stumbled upon a piece of research from some wacky psychologists written back in the 80s, and they used a term called ecophobia. Mm -hmm. And it refers to the feeling of powerlessness in the face of cataclysmic environmental change. And I was like, why isn't everyone talking about this? Mm -hmm. And so then I embarked on this like body of research to try and distill it down and constantly coming up with new kind of hypotheses because it is such a multifaceted kind of problem but eventually realized that you know that it distills down to three core buckets so historically why I believe we haven't taken action on climate change is for one our optimism bias you know it's the blind spot of any culture which is its inability to comprehend its own impending demise mm. um, unable to compute you know, we've never seen a problem or a challenge in our society as large yet slow moving as climate change. And we humans are wired to respond to these sudden intimate attacks. You know, when a tiger leaps at you from a bush, uh, you're wired for fight or flight, as it does, as it does. Uh <laughs> it doesn't happen in the UK, sorry. No, you get, you I'm sorry. Is this just like an Australian specific? Yeah, okay. Um, and so then you have the way that the media has communicated the problem to date you know the fact that how many of us have ever seen a polar bear I mean I can't say I have I'm not one of the lucky ones um solar panels they're not very sexy so the whole like dialogue around climate change itself has been very like one-dimensional and so it's very much how we've like responded on a psychological level then you have in terms of young people stepping up to the table you have all of these pressures um, in terms of getting the nine-to-five job the fact that our sense of self-worth and value in society is wrapped in you know how many zeros come after our name um, it's all about being very productive and we wonder where the industrial mindset comes from you know it's a system that tells students to become a set of averages um, rather than nurturing their individuality you have consumerism, you have disposable living, the fact that we live in a society that is highly competitive so that instead of considering the um, flourishing of the whole or the benefit of the whole, it's the benefit of I, it's the benefit of the individual. And so there are all of these constructs um, that 21st century living brings. And then finally you have the area that I'm most interested in, which is how we perceive the world around us and how we perceive ourselves in that world. Mm -hmm. And young people are stepping up. You know, on March 15th, 1.4 million young people took to the streets in protest of global climate inaction. But on March 16th, 1.4 million young people turned around and asked, what now? And mm -hmm. so 
they realize the power they can have with their voice. They realize the power they can have when they mobilize. And yet there's still lots of young people who want to make a difference but have no idea where or how to start. And the problem with protest is that often left in its wake is this feeling of powerlessness when their demands aren't met. You know, when they look to the people in positions of power and they do F all. (laughs) And so how do you instill young people with the confidence in their own abilities and the clarity of cause, what problem they want to take on so that they can step up rather than shut down in the face of these big, messy problems like climate change. And so that's really what we're trying to do is actually rewire those beliefs. Um, You know, often hear things like, I'm just one in 7.6 billion people. What difference can I make really? Or the future is something happening to me, not something I have control over. Um, Or the one that has surprised me most is, you know, people who do take action are somehow smarter or more experienced. They're better. You know, and so all of these stories that we tell ourselves are absolutely ridiculous and they're crazy, Um, but we need to actually rewrite them so that we then have the audacity to go forward. And I think every young person starts out naively optimistic in a really, really good way. If anything, we need more of that naive optimism. Mm. Um, But over time, it gets beaten out of them and they get better at better uh, at conforming rather than going against the tide. Um, so it, it, it starts with the individual and, and realizing where your gift is and where your sweet spot is in mm-hmm. that system. Yeah. And the, and the problem with conforming to um, a system that is hell bent on going um, into its kind mm-hmm. of onto, in, in, onto the brink of its own destruction. Is, yeah. It's not a good time to conform. <laughs> it's a terrible really. time to conform. Exactly. And but that's also the flip side. I think, you know, climate change is the greatest threat faced by any generation ever. But it also offers the biggest opportunity. You know, climate change itself is not the problem, but the symptom of broken systems. And so as a generation, we need to step up and redesign all of these systems. We need to rebuild them from the way we produce our clothes to the way we make our food to the people we put in positions of power. I mean, right down to the way we communicate with one another, you know, and adopting this collaboration mindset over a scarcity and competition mindset. And so with that comes so many different opportunities and trajectories for young people. Um, You know, being an environmentalist no longer means chaining yourself to a tree or riding a zodiac into the path of a whaling ship. You know, no matter what you're passionate about, there's a way to use that to create really, really big change. Um, Even if you're a doctor, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There's plenty that we can do and are doing. Yeah. Um, More on that another time. Yes. Um, But... So this is, I mean, this feeds very, well, this is what you're doing now. This is very Mm. much, you want to be the person um, or you want to be one of the the catalysts Mm. for young people who, after the march, don't know what to do. Yes. And you want to help them out. Exactly, exactly. It's it's about mobilizing the emerging generation of leaders. Um, I do believe that the future of life on our planet depends on how effectively we enable young people to step up. And so that has become my full-time mission. Still find myself in boardrooms occasionally, but less interested in in older white gentlemen in stuffy business suits and more interested. How old is old, <laughs> by the way? Just <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to put an age to that. Um, Smart. <laughs> you know, I'm more interested in being with 
young, dynamic, passionate people mm. who have all the energy that we so desperately need and all the optimism we so desperately need, uh, but don't necessarily know where to channel it. So as part of Force of Nature, my organization, which is founded very recently, um, we're developing an algorithm-based tool to help young people realize their change-making potential. So it's all around this concept of personalized change-making based on psychometric testing mm-hmm. um, so that you can actually understand where your sweet spot is. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> so how does this, how does it work? So it's a good question. It's very <laughs> early days yet, yeah. but one of the big realizations was that we couldn't adopt the same thinking that created the standardized education system. There is no program like one fits all kind of thing. So it's about meeting the individual halfway. And so in keeping with that philosophy, uh, we've just embarked on a body of research into the psychology of agency. So instead Mm -hmm. of assuming what young people want or think or need or feel in the face of these messy problems, uh, actually asking them breakthrough idea (laughs) and so we're working in classrooms we're working with teachers um obviously doing a major literature review to kind of pull together all of this data and start to figure out the emerging trends in young people's beliefs and specifically their limiting self-beliefs um because i think only when you start to address core negative beliefs can you then fulfill your potential without self-sabotaging? And so obviously if you have a negative self-belief, that spirals out to affect your expectations of the world, your attitude, um, your opinions, belief systems, all the way through to your actions. So if it's a negative one, like, you know, I have no power, I have no voice, I'm worthless, then it turns into apathy in action. If you concede a positive belief, I am good enough, I'm smart enough, I'm experienced enough, actually I have all of the energy I need and I bring a unique set of skills to the table, then that radiates out to turn into really positive, empowering action. Um, And that resilience, emotional resilience, I think is what we need more than ever before because otherwise you get to your first hurdle and you retreat and that affects your opinion of yourself and... You know, like, you go. I knew, I knew I wasn't good enough. I knew I wasn't good enough. Go I, you know, else. I'll go on a spiritual retreat when I'm 45, and I'll realize my mission then, yeah. <laughs> which is something you hear often. It's like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll do the nine to five job, I'll go to university, I'll do all of that, and then I'll do something later in life. Mm-hmm. And it's like we actually aren't working to that timeline anymore. <laughs> we need like as many people to mobilize as possible, um, and so it's about doing things in the here and now and finding great fulfillment in it as well. You know, this isn't about self sacrifice, mm-hmm. uh, being a self sacrifice official lamb to the environmental movement it's find something that is driven by pain which is the cause that you're motivated by but something that brings you great passion yeah where does that passion lie yeah so you're motivated by the pain and Mm. also the you have to yeah the beauty that you're aiming towards exactly because i think if you're purely fueled by your frustration at people in positions of power, your anger at the system, you know, um, feeling really hopeless, then you're ultimately going to burn out, Mm. right? But if it's something that actually motivates you to get out of bed every morning and you're like, oh, damn, I really feel good about doing this and I'm really excited to do it, that's what, you know, that's what's going to drive you. And that's why I was so lucky to discover you know, communication and filmmaking and these things at an early age, because it was something that I got a lot of personal pleasure out of. But had I have just been there, you know, with my placard getting really upset at the, you know, poachers. <laughs> and it makes you angry. Yeah. And, and it makes you, and the people who are doing these things, they often have 
some other issue that mm. is force you know forcing them into it or totally. driving them into it and if you don't understand that you're never going to This is exactly get a resolution. It. yeah one of my favorite like modern day philosophers is a guy called Charles Eisenstein he's amazing highly recommend you check out his stuff and he um, does a lot of work around climate environmentalism and introducing a very interesting new narrative around this um, and he one of the things that he said that really resonated was you know if you go out into the streets and you point your finger at the person in the position of power, be they the banking executive or the guy in oil and gas, and say, you're wrong, I'm right, you're bad, I'm good, I'm gonna take you down. What that suggests is that you fundamentally don't understand the influences converging on that person's life. And instead of trying to change that one person or take down that one person, how are you changing the story in which they live? How are you changing the system in which they operate? Because otherwise, they're just going to keep popping up left, right, and center, <laughs> like a yeah. like a bad weed you can't get rid of. Mm. So we have to change. We have to change those systems. The education system is a very important one that I'm very passionate about. Um, but it's it's every system in society. It's the you know what John's mission is the financial system, mm. right? But it's 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 everything. And what was the story that made you follow your path? I guess you were influenced a lot by your parents to start with. Definitely. Um, yeah, it, there were a lot of uh, dinner table debates between my dad and I. Um, <laughs> he's he's a friend, so he's a botanist, but he's also, well, he's done a lot of things in his life, one of which is um, being a chef, and he's French to boot. So when I came out at 11 and said, well, I'm becoming vegetarian and I'm just going to eat salad and carrots for the rest of my life, this is like a very traumatic, <laughs> confronting experience for, for him. For a French person. For a French person, it was a, it was a lot to take. And so, and it was kind of like a disregard for everything that he loved and held so dear. Mm. And so we would have these very heated debates around animal agriculture and vegetarianism. And um, I never quite managed to win him over until... I started working at Impossible Foods. And that was because all this time I'd been pushing the ethical argument with him, which can be a very slippery one. But when I started learning about the science behind the agricultural industry, the impact it had on plants, especially his babies, um, (laughs) he suddenly got it, you know? And so the lesson that that instilled in me was you need to understand what your audience cares about to be able to effectively communicate with them. And so... It, it transformed me from being a very black and white kind of radical activist with that you're wrong, I'm right mindset to, oh, wait, this is like a spectrum of gray. <laughs> and you have to explore every side of the argument. You have to understand the person you're communicating to. And then you have to find some kind of like interesting middle ground and a shared solution that you can work towards. So it's very it's. Very much about collaboration. And he, yeah, Dad still challenges me at the dinner table, but it, it's a little good. more constructive have a now. Constructive exactly. Debate rather than a, a yeah. negative, angry debate. Definitely, definitely. So obviously, you've you're you know you've been involved with lots of fascinating mentors, had a lot of debates, seen two different school systems. Mm. Um, you have a lot of experience at, at a young age. Where do you see that kind of going in terms of your new company? Mm. What, what would you like? its impact to be so without blinking i'm going to say that i want to change the global education industry (laughs) why not why not why not exactly (laughs) exactly um 
because I see that it is the source of so much pain in the world and it also holds what I believe is the key um, to mobilizing young people en masse and fostering their creativity, their passion, their love for things rather than replacing it with frustration, anxiety. I mean, exactly as you mentioned, eco-anxiety. There was a study recently that said that the second greatest cause of anxiety in um, university students here in the UK after exam period was climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's starting at an earlier and earlier age. You know, I was in a school recently speaking to a group of 10 and 11 year olds and I asked them, how do you feel about the future? And immediately the word that came out was pessimistic. And the future that they started to describe sounded like it came from some dystopian Hollywood blockbuster. Mm-hmm. That's really scary. <laughs> really, really scary. And these were students as well in what you would consider quite a switched on school, um, quite a good community, quite receptive. But they were still talking about, you know, this great frustration they felt in not being able to, not being supported to go out in the streets and protest and not being supported to create, you know, projects with impact. I think young people are so frustrated by what I refer to as eco cup solutions. So, you know, when you go and tweet about orangutans in Borneo, you're doing little more than swathing yourself in the self-assurance that you've done your bit. Mm. And it's the same for turning off the lights when you leave a room, making a monthly donation to Greenpeace, going All important stuff. Yeah. But <laughs> important stuff. You know, thing. but that's it, even going to the polls to vote between a climate change denier and a seasoned procrastinator. You know, young people realize that these are mosquito bites on the bum of a monster that gets bigger by the day. You know, they're not stupid <laughs> and they're frustrated by constantly being pushed these solutions. I asked them, you know, what did you think about Starbucks's recent move to uh, swap out the plastic straws? And they were angry. <laughs> they were really angry. They're like, well, they just replaced them with plastic lids, which use more plastic. Like, what are they thinking? You know, and so they're so candid and they see things how they are. They look at corporations that are greenwashing. They look at leaders that kind of skirt around the issues until they can just hide them under the rug. Um, And so there's all of this energy there, but we need to channel it. And so if I could have any impact on the planet, it's helping people do exactly that. You know, find that agency, overcome their ecophobia, overcome their anxiety and do so by, you know, channeling that energy into something that really drives them, but also something that they get a lot of fulfillment from, you know, something that makes them really happy. I think that's ultimately like if you want to get into it philosophically, the pursuit of life is to like find fulfillment and purpose. And what better way to do that than trying to save the planet? Absolutely. <laughs> so there are lots of people listening who are um, kids who are um, interested in finding a route out of this kind mm-hmm. of apathy and distress. And, yeah. um, and also adults listening who are like, oh, this girl's, you know, she's really got, she's got a lot of passion mm-hmm. um, and a lot of experience. Like, how can we help her? So um, where can people find you and where can they get in contact with you? And what, and what, what can people do to assist as well? Thank you. Oh, I don't know how to... Well, I'll start with how to get in contact. So if you search Clover Hogan online, you'll find some back way of getting in, <laughs> in touch. Uh, it's Clover Hogan on Twitter, um, Clover Hogan on Instagram. Uh, otherwise, yeah, if you go to my website, if you reach out that way... CloverHogan.com. Clover Hogan, yeah, super original. Um, <laughs> I made that when I was 12, so don't hate. But... Uh-huh. <laughs> um, 
yeah so just reach out on any one of those platforms and yeah the I think the best way to help is to help yourself in finding what drives you and and taking action in a meaningful way and in a way that you know isn't tokenistic but really has the potential to create big change um don't overwhelm yourself with the number of solutions out there this isn't about overnight becoming vegetarian swapping out all of your energy you know Mm. suddenly only shopping from charity shops i mean you're more than welcome to do all of those things and hats off to you i could obviously change a lot of things about my lifestyle i still fly all around the world i'm not proud of it but i think it's really about like honing in on that one problem that you want to solve so that's how you can help is ask that you know Mm. if you could solve any one problem in the world today what would it be and then start doing something about it that's a good question. You're making me think now. Good. Um, <laughs> great. And is there any, um, if people are listening um, who are interested in what you're doing, is there any, are there any people that you'd like to meet or be introduced to? Mm. Who are the perfect people? Don't think small. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm like. My first thought was like, who's in the Oval Office? And I'm like, definitely no, abort, <laughs> abort. That would be the ultimate test in persuasion. But um, I haven't thought about this. <laughs> I should do, shouldn't I? Yeah, you think about it. Probably Emma Watson because she's like, she's just amazing okay. on every level. Yeah, and yeah. I was called Hermione Granger in high school, so I think we'd have lots to. You were called Hermione. Hermione Granger. Granger yeah. Okay. I used to have like very in Bali frizzy uh, hair. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. Um. Great. So, um, I'm just going to ask you a few quick questions to finish. Go for it. Um. Okay. So I often ask people if they could go back to when they were like a child, what would they say? But to themselves. <laughs> but I'm not sure that really works with you. I don't know how you'd have back to go back to like fetus, when you were five. Your dad was probably saying these things to you when you, yeah, when you were there already. Totally. So is it what would I say to myself when I was? I don't know what. <laughs> I don't. Think, I don't think I can do this to you. Would you change anything? Like, would in I your, change anything? If you could go back to your nine-year-old, ten-year-old self, live in you? the chair of no regrets. Live Great. in the chair of no regrets. <laughs> okay. And who are your biggest influences? Ooh, I love anyone who is out and proud and doing something so Greta's obviously a big one um there are so many amazing climate young climate activists out there they're all on my twitter follower list if you want to find them um otherwise the people who i do you know what i don't think we actually give enough recognition to people who have been in this game for like 50 60 years so because they're the ones who have been on the front lines and they, they were also on the front lines before this thing existed, like before climate change was in the common lingo, before it was cool, exactly. Um, So, you know, people like Bill McKibben, obviously John Elkington, um, Mm. Paul Hawken, responsible for Project Drawdown, um, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, just like these incredible environmentalists. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are you familiar with her? Yeah, Yeah, she's super. Yes. Um, The Green New Deal. Green New Deal, exactly, which is arriving on these shores sooner rather than later. Um, yeah, so just people who who are actually in it and out there and doing something. And 
any inspirational books or podcasts or things that you You should have asked me this right before I came so I could actually think <laughs> this through. I usually have my Kindle so I could just like flick through them. Um, Paul Mason, Clear Bright Future is a very good one. Um, and also I would say Charles Eisenstein, Climate, A New Story. And that's where he really digs into how to not only envision the future we want to create, but how to live that every day. I think someone sent me the link to that about two days ago. Really? Uh, okay, well, is, get on it. <laughs> it's amazing. And what was the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so much pressure. Okay. Um, wow, my dad's going to kill me if I if I don't quote him. Um the best advice I've ever been given. Probably to, this one's from my mom, sorry dad, um, which is to embrace uncertainty and to constantly live outside of your comfort zone. She's actually a personal development coach, so she's constantly spouting this like guru-esque advice, which is great. Yeah, it all makes sense. Exactly. The child of a botanist and a a personal (laughs) development coach. This is what you get. This is is the product of the lab experiment. Um, So she's constantly, she well, yeah, she's basically indoctrinated me for the past twenty years. But the thing that's really stuck is like how to live outside of your comfort zone. And so she has this model that she looks at called, you know, you've got your comfort zone, you've got your panic zone, and then you have your growth zone. And the growth zone is like this magic in between. Um, and so it's really cool because I can look back at things. I can look at things that I do now, which would have absolutely terrified me a few years ago, such as podcasting. Um, and it's all about like constantly setting those goals that really, really push you um, and force you to grow. And I think it's really special to then look back and say, oh, wow, I've, I've come away. I, I, it'll be interesting to see where you are age 30 <laughs> or 40. Um, we'll look back on this, yes. on this podcast. It'll be interesting. And last question, what gives you hope? The most hope for the future. Young people. Young people, yeah. Yes. Yeah. The 11, 12, 13 through 18, 19, 20-year-old upstarts who have the audacity to challenge people in positions of power and also the commitment and conviction to create that power for themselves. Absolutely. Mm. I was saying before, that's, um, there was a doctor's movement who went to parliament a few days ago with the Climate Coalition, with mm. the Time Is Now um, demonstration, and there were some of the youth movement leaders were there giving speeches. Uh, these are like 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds. Yeah. I could never have imagined doing that when I was that <laughs> young, but they're amazing. And they're like asking really difficult questions oh, of yeah. Michael Gove and yeah. all these politicians. And they're just astounding. So um, seeing them absolutely gives me hope. Absolutely. it's it's. I can see why men in suits are intimidated by this rise in, mm. in young people because it is terrifying. I mean, they threaten everything that they've built around them, the way of life, the power. But, you know, young people are coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. 
If you want to hear more about today's guests, check out the show notes at thegreenpill.org. And tune in next time for Fazl and Khalid, recently voted one of Britain's greatest environmentalists and the founder of Eco-Islam. The Green Pill is edited by Kazra Ferrugia, produced by James Bishop and is part of the One Fine Play Podcast Network. You can find me on Dr. Chris Newman on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, see ya.